music, I tell you, it's going to save the world. If the world is going to be saved, it's going to be saved largely by music, you know. Welcome to the Acoustic Guitar Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Grizzle, and I'll be joined on this episode by co-host Elton Bradman. For this episode, we zoomed across the world from California to Sweden to talk with the much more than just a blues guitarist, Eric Bibb. If you'd like to support our show, please go to patreon.com slash acoustic guitar plus or check the show notes for more information. In addition to supporting us, when you're a member of our Patreon community, you get special access to a whole bunch of perks, including extended and bonus episodes of this podcast and much more. In a career spanning five decades, Eric Bibb has proven to be a musical alchemist. In a recent review for Acoustic Guitar Magazine, senior editor Blair Jackson noted that Bibb has, quote, combined heaping helpings of blues, gospel, folk, and world music into a distinctive and magical amalgam that feels like its own genre. Our conversation today with Eric Bibb begins with a question about that magical amalgam of his. How did he develop his unique sound? Like so many people around me and before me, I found that country blues and the African-American folk music that you can hear on early recordings from the 20s and 30s, I found it had something totally mesmerizing, almost supernatural. Uh, it grabbed me. And when I heard that it went to Chicago and got electrified, I still heard that thing. But because I grew up with an acoustic guitar in my hands and played some classical guitar, I was drawn more to the, uh, the acoustic blues people. What I realized very early on was, for the most part, they were from the Southern United States. And most of them who were my heroes were people who were close to the soil, agrarian lifestyle, poor people, definitely the underclass. Those people, you know, whether they were farmers or bauhaus piano players with a pistol in their pocket or whatever, that music grabbed me so hard. But then I realized, you know, as years went by, you know, their experience is not my experience. I grew up in New York City in an upper middle class cultural mecca. Being black notwithstanding, I was exposed to uh, things that kings and queens of another time were not exposed to. Let's face it, you know, I was a privileged kid. And still I'm drawn to this music of the black underclass in the southern United States being a New York City northern kid. So I realized pretty early on I could do what some of my friends who were studying with people like Reverend Gary Davis, I could try to really nail that style, mimic it, and really you know, master it. But however far I came down that particular road, it would never be as heavy and strong and powerful as the original, for one thing. 
Second, it would never be as authentic. So it wouldn't have that power. So I realized, okay, you've been exposed to a lot of kinds of music. It's all in your heart and soul. Everything that you've ever loved is going to be a part of what you regurgitate. You love the blues. So what is it? At a certain point, I realized I probably stumbled upon it. I could play a certain chord that was some kind of modal chord that would remind you more of Foray or Ravel. And I could slip it into the right uh, turnaround in a kind of country blues model, and it would work. By changing a note or leaving out a note, leaving it open, not committing to a major or a minor, but going more modal. Uh, and then when I started doing that over and over again and feeling like this really does work, I felt like I found a way in to retain what I loved and could reproduce uh, in a natural way from my country blues heroes, together with an element that was really directly from my own experience. That melding freed me up. Then I didn't have to sound like Booker White, you know, as much as I love Booker White. I could be me. And um, some people heard it. Some people criticized it. Some people want you to stay in some kind of blues museum, you know, but Robert Johnson would be playing different music than on the records that we have from him if he was still playing today. He wouldn't be, have stayed there. He, he would probably remember how to play it, sort of, but probably not as hip as he played it in 1936, but he'd be playing some other stuff, you know. Damn, that's beautiful, beautiful advice for all, all composers, you know, um, that, the way you just described it. And also, we live in a time when black culture is so all over the planet there are so many people trying to ape certain aspects of black culture that even as a as a black person, you're like, well, damn, can I out black that non-black person over there? You know what I'm saying? Like it's a real <laughs> exactly, thing. Exactly, exactly. Oh, I've had listen, man, I've been in Sweden. I've been at blues festivals with friends of mine, dear friends, some of them here, some of them passed on, who really, I mean, if you blindfolded the audience in 1961 Chicago at, uh, you know, uh, Silvio's in, in a blues club and you played my friend Sven, Sven Zetterberg and you played me, man, they'd be saying, bring that, bring that Swede back, man. We want to hear him, man. Because, man, because, I mean, in terms of the language, in terms of what he'd been able to absorb... That's what he focused on. I didn't focus on that. I focused on figuring out a way to be who I was. But he focused on reproducing in his own way, surely, because you, you, in the end, you're yourself. But he studied the language and the nuances to such a degree that people blindfolded would say, he's got to be black. You know, wow. they would say yeah. that. Yeah, And I'm talking about not just the player. I'm talking about singing it, singing it, man. That's how hard he went. You know, and I know a Swedish gospel singer who he's a friend of Kirk Franklin. But man, he would go over in any church, any church who was into that sound, you know. And so, you know, God moves in mysterious ways. I think it's a message, you know. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because really what I'm saying is that music, whether it's the gospel side or the blues side, is a gift to black Americans, but it's in turn a gift to the world. Let's face it, it's a universal gift. Okay, it's universal glue. That's how serious it is. So that's why I get upset when people cartoonize it, you know, and try to make it some kind of, you know, caricature when really it's a living culture that has sustained not only one tribe, but basically helped unite the world, you know. 
you can't really minimize it. <laughs> yeah, I got to ask you, you know, when I look at the at the 60s and 70s and I see how many young non-black folks were inspired by the blues, you know what I mean? And worshiping Mississippi Fred McDowell and stuff. I'm just trying to imagine you as a young person surrounded by all these badasses in Greenwich Village and stuff. Mm. How does that look from your perspective to see all these people just worshiping? I mean, and people have built whole careers. Yes. You know, muddy waters, DNA, and stuff. So, how did that look as a as a as a black man? I'm super curious what that was looking like. Well, it was interesting. Uh, a young black man in New York City, uh, not Chicago, not Jackson, Mississippi, but New York City. So, here's what I saw early in my life. You know, because of my dad's involvement with the folk uh, scene in New York, I heard Lead Belly. You know, and he was far out. He played everything, you know, but he was certainly a blues player. But he was just a, a troubadour who could just throw out a song that, you know, half the world would learn in half a minute because he was that kind of kind of person with that kind of ability to, to um, popularize something. So Lead Belly came along. And then came, uh, I heard Big Bill Brunzi on record, these kind of people who were also under the umbrella of the folk music uh, scene. Bill Brunsey was an early one. Then came the rediscovery of people like Mississippi John Hurt, um, uh, Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee were on the scene. Um, but I saw Sun House, Robert Johnson's mentor, when I was 14 at the Newport Folk Festival. The same time that I saw Bob Dylan, Tim Harden, Mississippi John Hurt, the Chambers Brothers. So for me, my whole formative years as a musician was not boxes, but was a scene that included everything from McCoy Tyner to um, Skip James. You know, it was that eclectic. And plus, I was going to a musical high school singing, you know, Handel's Messiah, uh, uh, singing art songs from 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 uh, Foray. You know, it was like that. It was like uh, the whole rainbow of music was in my life in one way or another. So when I saw people like Al Cooper, the Blues Project, Danny Cow, playing blues, that was the first blues, electric blues that I saw live. Later, I saw people like Junior Wells and Buddy Guy, you know. But first live, you know, on records, I heard those guys before, but first live on the village scene, I heard, you know, white guys, Dave Von Ronk playing blues, you know. I was never indoctrinated with the segregation part of it. I just thought this is great music. Some black people do it. Not too many that I could see right now in front of me, you know, but uh, more white guys finger picking. But nonetheless, I got a chance to see, like I said, some of my heroes who started the whole thing, you know. So um, I feel very privileged. <laughs> yeah, you know, with your latest album, Dear America, I'm curious about how living in Sweden for so long has impacted your perspective on the United States. For one thing, being an observer as well as emotionally a participant in what's going on in the States. You know, I was born and raised in New York City. I left the States, you know, on my own to live in Europe at age 18. And what I remember about growing up in New York City, which is a planet unto itself, <laughs> New York is, is like no other place. Everything is unique, but New York is uniquer, you know what I mean? 
But, you know, having said that, I was aware of other parts of the of United States. You know, my grandparents were from Louisville, Kentucky, so we'd go there in the summers. My mom was from Albuquerque, New Mexico, so be out there in the Southwest. And it wasn't until I, I started touring uh, the States later in life uh, that I really got to see much of, you know, the hinterland. But I'll say this. Um, after 18 years in the States, being... Uh, acutely aware, uh, you know, physically, intellectually, historically about uh, what it is to be an African-American, um, I was conscious immediately of the lack of uh, physical tension body-wise, you know, just walking around Europe, being in Paris, seeing uh, students from Africa who looked sort of like me, but who didn't have any of the same body language that Americans had, you know, uh, being free of that constant um, uh, spook of, of racial uh, prejudice that's a part of American oxygen, you know. Let's face it, uh, doesn't matter who you are, you're aware of it on some level and some <laughs> level in your body. So. I really experienced a relief of that particular tension. First off, it's not that there's not issues everywhere, you know, and being uh, a person of color, as it were, in Europe is also a challenging situation, you know. But I felt a real visceral relief uh, from a kind of tension that you get so used to you don't even realize that it's there until it's not there you know what I mean so let me just say that so as far as how that impacts my uh, viewing of America uh, you could say I, I was able to take a step away and not feel so uh, um, vulnerable uh, pissed off threatened a lot of stuff that was kind of dominant in my emotional you know, experience of America kind of fell away and I could look at America like a, a historian almost, you know, uh, and see, wow, that's some pretty radical stuff going on there. Uh, that was a really dramatic phase in history that must have uh, had a huge impact on generations, you know, all of that. As Americans, we get so used to uh, the history that we read in books, you know, we celebrate the president's birthdays, we go through all that stuff, but we're really sidetracked from the truth of how brutal the history really is for so many people, not just African-Americans, native uh, Aboriginal folks in America, uh, immigrants in general. So what I'm saying is I was able to look at what's going on in America without a knee-jerk reaction of bitterness or frustration or hate or, you know, I was able to uh, breathe a little bit deeper and look at it uh, as a participant, but also as an outsider looking in. Yeah. Um, I, have to, I have to just say, um, we could talk about this all day because yeah, these perspectives are very, very deep and real. You know, I got to live in India for a few years when I was 10 years old. Wow. And uh, I've been very fortunate to travel all over this planet playing music. And there you go. That changes you. I feel you. You know, um, before we jump directly into the how did this affect your music? Because, you know, mm. that's coming. Right. Um, 
you know, I'm dying to know. Uh, there's such a long tradition of Americans and especially, especially black musicians leaving the U.S. and settling in Europe. It's funny, you know, having lived in Europe and in Scandinavia for so many years, I've noticed a tendency for, uh, let's just talk about where I live, Sweden and Swedish folk um, and Swedish culture. I've noticed a tendency for Swedish culture not only to um, be inspired by, follow, copy, American culture, but also, sadly, copy some of the worst aspects of American culture. You know, racism is not hip. Wearing a Confederate flag is not hip. You know, it might seem exotic, but there's a history that is so brutal, if you really faced it, you would be embarrassed to, to wear something like that. But people, you know, have a kind of uh, cartoon-like, uh, romanticized uh, view uh, to a degree in popular culture of American history so that all of the stuff that, you know, we find um, really, what can I say, astounding in terms of the cruelty, uh, those qualities seem to be marginalized here, culturally thought of as kind of some kind of quirky, you know, hipness, you know, and I, I really take exception to that. Um, it, it disturbs me greatly, but I see the same kind of tendencies towards cutting back of civil liberties in exchange for some kind of law and order. I see that happening in Sweden, and it's alarming because Sweden for so long had the uh, reputation of being such a liberal, open-minded society that took care of its citizens with social welfare, free Medicare, all of that stuff is still in place, but it's waning. It's not increasing. The movement is to the right everywhere. And there are people who are following the um, Bannon-Trump uh, model all over Europe. And it's disturbing as can be, I tell you that. Mm. Do you feel, uh, you know, as a, as a Black person in these places, do you feel a duty to explain <laughs> you know, and like, look, you may be fascinated with this this part of America, but let me try to tell yes. you from my perspective. Yes, very much so. It's become more and more an urgent um, uh, element, you know, in my writing. It's not like I don't um, enjoy writing love songs and uh, just love being in a good groove with a, a sweet melody. But I feel drawn to using my uh, ability, talent, and platform to basically fill in some gaps that I feel are being hewn into, you know, the historical record. Man, you have people who are talking about burning textbooks and deleting whole chapters of American history because it's uncomfortable. I mean, really, people, how intelligent is that? I mean, come on. It, it really doesn't take a genius to figure out that everything that you push under the carpet and you try to, to, to conceal, uh, in this day and age of information, there is no way that people are gonna buy that anymore. That might have worked, you know, some other time in some other place, but it's over. So um, it's, a, it's a fear reaction and it's, it's one that's dividing uh, America and other places. And you just feel like, all right, we have to keep, um, telling it like it is, 
finding a way to do it so that more people listen, that we're not just preaching to the choir, which is a real art in itself, finding a way to actually get past, you know, that first, you know, I'm not listening to this guy. He's talking politics and he's one of those rabble rousers, you know. Uh, so finding a way to do that both musically and, and lyrically um, has been challenging. But I must say, I've been feeling really um, guided you know, like this is my role and I get help writing songs. And all of a sudden there's an album, there's a new album that follows up uh, uh, Dear America, which has some similar themes. And I just feel like I've been drawn to this and this is where my talents converge with what uh, is culturally something that's um, needed in this time. So I, I feel, you know, like for all the... the um, <laughs> For all of the um, sadness, there's this feeling that there are people out there, including you guys, who uh, realize, that, hey, man, we have to do more than just tap our feet. You know, grooving is great. And if I can say something with a groovy song that'll like get past, you know, your first guard, you know, and you'll start to think about something in a different way, I'm really, really fulfilled. Man, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. I know that I know Nick uh, wanted to ask you about this term global griot. Mm -hmm. And I think that what you're describing right now is someone who has the perspective of having traveled and can speak truth and put it in a palatable way that can get past that first guard. So I thank you for that. You mentioned it. And I'm so happy to hear of your experiences living abroad, because, um, as I said, it's first when you really get to experience people um, up close, not uh, their brand, not what the PR companies tell you, but basically a one-on-one -on -one experience with people over and over and again. And you make your own conclusions, but m what you do most of all is you um, let go of your um, tendency to a degree let go of your ten tendency to stereotype people. And you realize that people are people, man. And it doesn't matter where they're from. You're going to hear the whole and see and meet the whole spectrum, you know, in any given society. And you realize how we have been manipulated, really, uh, by whatever powers that be to, to think in these boxes and to uh, stay with stereotypical uh, concepts of people that are centuries old, man. That reminds me of that, that song Black and White on Dear America. When did you start writing this, the, the music for this album? Because it's so prescient now. It came out last year. Did you set out to make this type of album or did the songs just kind of start leading toward that? Well, to backtrack just a bit, because you mentioned it, Black and White is a song that um, I started and uh, ended up collaborating with my producer, Glenn Scott, on that as, as well as many tracks. But he um, took basically the seed of a song and turned it into uh, an opus that I think is just so complete and gorgeous and evocative of all that we wanted to get across uh, with that song. Um, it's one of my favorite things on that album, and it's ambitious, you know, because this goes beyond branding, you know, my branding as an acoustic blues troubadour or whatever, whatever. Man, I'm just trying to say something with the uh, means that I have available. And um, wherever it goes to musically, um, I like to think of myself as just basically uh, uh, 
a music lover who who has focused on a certain um, part of my tradition heavily, but that doesn't mean that I've been deaf, dumb, and blind to you know all the all the things that I've heard and loved in my life from wherever they come. But that song is is definitely um, one of the songs that I'm most pleased with in terms of saying something really um, heavy and important, but doing it in a way that at least <laughs> gives people a chance to hang on until we get, you know, past the first verse, you know, even though it's about an uncomfortable subject. It's this uncomfortable conversation that we have to face uh, repeatedly if we're going to get anywhere. So I'm trying to make it more comfortable, you know what I mean? <laughs> so to your question about when did I start, it's funny that thing of prescience and, and how I've had the experience, uh, and I don't take uh, personal credit for it. I think it's the muse that's inspiring so many people, uh, however you want to formulate that concept. But uh, being in a position to write songs that um, maybe tell a bit of the future and give people a heads up of uh, stuff that's uh, important to think about, that's a privilege. That goes back to the Global Griot uh Responsibility and mantle that you that you uh, wear uh, willingly because you realize you've been prepared for it. And I got to say that um, when I look back over my journey as a musician, I realize with sometimes great clarity what every step meant in terms of the next step, how it connected to you know this is you know it's philosophy, it's uh, it's spirituality, and it's music. And it's um, it's just a good time to be a musician, I think. You know, if you're if you're woke, and if you uh, feel inspired to uh, spread a good a good word that will help bring people together, as opposed to divide them. It's basically what it's about. You know. So yeah, it, it happened that I started writing the album uh, basically two years prior to it being released. You know, not knowing that it was going to be that kind of album. I'll just mention the the song Emmett's Ghost. Um, was inspired, it's been a story that's been with me a long time, but it was inspired by um, a great documentary film about Sam Cooke that I saw about, I think it's called The Two Killings of Sam Cooke. Man, woo! That that knocked me out. And there's a reference to Emmett Till in that film, and that's what got me thinking, rethinking about Emmett and writing that song, you know. But all of that happened before... You know, a lot of stuff, you know, George Floyd, all that stuff. So it just kind of took shape uh, and ended up being this. Yes. And I realized that uh, subconsciously I was um, I was gravitating towards uh, things that were uh, in the news and that were too big to not comment on in some way, you know. Well, I also wanted to to ask you about the the writing and recording process. But uh, uh, Elton, I know you wanted to ask about Ron Carter. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm assuming, you know, looking at your at your family and where you were raised, it's it's not a it's not like a complete it's not, you know, Ron Carter didn't come from from Mars. Right. Like I feel, you know, you had some connection before, what, you know. Yes, it's true. What happened was my dad, who was really the key to my whole entry into the, the wonderful, you know, cathedral of music. My dad had a television show called Someone New. It was a te- uh, a television talent show that featured young upcoming talent. This was uh, late 60s New York, New York City, local station, NBC station. 
And uh, my dad happened to think that it was the right thing to do to hire me as a guitarist for the house band. And I was 16 years old, totally out of my depth. You know, I could read a simple chart, but I was just really way out of my depth. And I think my dad thought, well, best to throw him in at the deep end and see what happens because, you know, and surround him with people who are going to either inspire him to, to be better and better and better or it won't happen. So there I was, surrounded by the likes of Ron Carter, who was the first uh, base choice. choice. Um, when Bill Lee, Spike Lee's dad, couldn't make it, Ron Carter was the bass player. The sax player was Selden Powell, who played with everybody from Aretha Franklin. To it was like that. So there I was, and I'll just tell you, on that show, I remember specifically a nine-year-old kid coming in with his cello and his parents, wowing everybody, knocking everybody out of their socks. And it was Yo-Yo Ma at nine years old, man. Yeah. So on that show, I met Ron Carter for the first time and played with him. And um, when I saw Ron recently here in Stockholm, um, we talked about it because we'd done the, re the recording session, but we talked about those... Uh, those years back uh, when he was working with uh, with my dad on that show. Yeah, amazing. Circles, you know, they will not be broken. <laughs> <laughs> I heard that. Yeah, man. You know, um, I'm thinking you as that 16-year-old kid, what instrument were you playing? Because you got a history of making some very inexpensive instruments sing. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you. I was playing... Um, I remember I, this is when 48th Street was the mecca for guitar players. You know, there were repair people, there were luthiers, there were shops galore. I went into a shop when I got the gig and got my union card and realized that whatever I had was not going to cut it. And uh, I probably should have chosen another instrument that was a, a little less temperamental, but I found a, a 1930s big-bodied Gibson, you know, like the kind that... Um, you know, Kenny Burrell or, or even, uh, remember Eric Gale? Yeah, Multiplication. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, he played a guitar like that. So I bought this big Gibson, and that's what I was playing on the show, you know, with, with an amplifier. Um, but I was basically an acoustic guitar player from the beginning. I studied some classical guitar, but I figured I needed, you know, a big body jazz guitar, and that was what I bought, you know. That's what I had on that the show. That was probably as big as you at that time. I mean, damn. Well, it was big. It was big. I loved it. I wish I still had it, you know, but let's not go there. Uh, you know? <laughs> but that's what I was playing. And um, like I said, reading simple charts and those other guys, the pros, were covering for me, you know, but uh, I made it through. You know, my uncle, uh, my uncle, I got to say, you know, I had it from both sides of my family. Um, my uncle, my mother's brother, uh, was John Lewis from the Modern Jazz Quartet, you know. So, so his music was, uh, had a dominant place in our lives, but also his, um, his stature as a musician internationally known was a huge subconscious inspiration to me, you know. I had a relative who'd been there before me, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, it was heavy, so... Uh, all that stuff is not necessarily things you think about in the moment when you're younger, but you realize, hey man, your way has been paved and psychologically you were prepared, you know, to, to meet those challenges, you know? Yeah. Mm. You've had so many influences. You've got the jazz side, uh, you know, you've got the folk side and you ended up 
and, and you end up uh, being known, like you said, the brand is blues, right? But it's, you hear all of that in your music. So I, I mean, it's almost unfair to just call you a blues player, honestly. Well, you know, it's funny you say all that because I could never take on the mantle of, hey man, yeah, he, he's a blues player, uh, period, you know. You could say that about a lot of my heroes, you know, Howlin' Wolf, you could say that about, you know, Earl Hooker, you could say that about Muddy Waters, but for me, uh, it was part truth and part convenience and part strategy to call myself uh, basically a blues player. I came along internationally, got a big breakthrough at the same time that Keb Mo came along, the same time that Corey Harris came along, same time that my friend Guy Davis was coming along. So all of a sudden there seems to be several African-American finger-picking guitar players who are into country blues, Alvin Youngblood Hart. You know, it was no accident that we all kind of arrived on the second wave after Taj Mahal. So uh, I realized marketing-wise, in terms of getting gigs, festival gigs and all kinds of stuff, even though I knew I was a, um, basically even more of a singer-songwriter, uh, the part of uh, my repertoire that leaned and was drawing on the blues was big enough so that I could, you know, advertise myself as such. And I'm glad for it because even though it is a bit of a blues prison sometimes, you know, it did give me access to a whole network of festivals and aficionados and print magazines. If I had just talked about myself, oh man, I'm a singer-songwriter. I tell you, I'm going to tell you the truth. Black singer-songwriters would have a hard time being just that because the record industry and the music industry, unfortunately, is still caught in that whole segregated past where basically an artist like Van Morrison can do whatever he wants. He can do a blues album, he can do a jazz album, he can do a country album, he can do an Irish album. It's harder for uh, 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 a contemporary of him who's, who's an African-American to have the same freedom uh, and maneuverability. So I understood uh, intuitively that I needed to um, attach myself to, and rightfully so, to my tradition, but that um, I had to also make it clear at every turn that um, there was more going on. Not only was there more going on with me, there was more going on with my heroes, but they didn't get a chance to advertise it. They had to hide that stuff. The fact that they like pop tunes on the radio, Irish melodies, polkas, whatever, country music. The producers said, hey man, we want that gut bucket blues. We don't want your yeah, your 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 take on, you know, uh, on Porter Wagner. And now we have a guy like Jimmy Allen. You hip to Jimmy Allen? You know, this country, yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's like people are trying to break out of these prisons, whether you're a blues artist or a country artist, you know, and it's easier uh, for others. But for blues artists to, to basically say, hey, I'm a musician, I love the blues, that's an uphill battle. It is. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that perspective, you know. I think that when I look back and think about the children that Muddy Waters fathered, you know what I'm saying, and all the people who've had multi-decade careers off a small part of, of their favorite artist's legacy, you know, it's, uh, it's an astounding thing. And, and then I look today, and when I think about modern blues, and I think about someone like Fantastic Negrito, you know, mm, mm. Uh, yes. and... And it's, it's an amazing journey. I mean, when we say this word, the blues, it just encompasses 
a lot, actually. It really does. It really does. It makes me think of, Elton, it makes me think of um, Leroy Jones's book, uh, Blues People. Because for me, the blues as a music is, is what it is, an amazing art form. Uh, but to me, it's, it's so much more than that. To me, it's, uh, it epitomizes a whole swath of the African-American cultural experience emanating from the South uh, around the music, whether you want it to be blues, you know, uh, secular, or you want it to be sacred music, you know, like Blind Willie Johnson or somebody like that. Um, that music, that language is not only something that has been exported around the world and delighted and enchanted a world global audience, let's not forget it was a tool and continues to be a survival tool for a whole people. I'm talking about psychically without the music, man, the stress. People would be like, you know, running in the streets, man. So it's like this has been a, a kind of divine uh, equalizer. I find it like uh, some kind of cosmic justice that the music of a people so hard pressed and oppressed has, <laughs> you know, enchanted, as I say, a whole world and united a whole world of music lovers around a people and maybe got them to at least crack the shell of, of the, the um, indoctrination and start to look at people as people, you know, through the music. It's been a door to, for, for, for people of color, for example, to travel to different places where they're not the main population, where there's a bit of, you know, mixing it up. And this is really, the musicians are in the vanguard. This is what's got to happen. Without that, this tribalism, this modern tribalism is going to do us in. You know, it's obvious. Yeah, yeah. Damn. I mean, even just the definition of blues, you know, when I, I think about, you know, when I was a uh, when I was a teenager, I got to see a show that was B.B. King, Buddy Guy and Eric Johnson. It was uh, advertised as a blues fest. And I was just blown away at the complete differences between these three people. Right. Right. You know, right. And that was all considered the blues. And I was like, wow, wow. And, and then as I studied, I was just like, man, that's the foundation for everything. Like all the yes, jazz, walking yes. bass lines I'm learning, like every blues is like the... Exactly, exactly. Yeah, that gift given to this, this, this tribe in a certain place in time that, that managed to get recorded a uh, hundred years ago starting, uh, it's just penetrated the cultures globally. You know, everywhere I go, there's somebody playing this music and playing it good too, and even singing it too. You know, it's surprising how how deep it reaches into people, so that they really become uh, students. Uh, you know, they want they want it. They want to learn it. They want to learn more about it. They travel to the states. They live with families who their parents would think, I don't know anybody like that. How? I have friends here in Sweden who, are, whether they're blues um, travelers or gospel travelers, uh, and they're similar in that sense, that they go to the source if they can, and they really go really as far into the source as they can. And people on the ground are so um, delighted to have the interest from <laughs> these these Nordic people, you know, it's like, man, the people around me who look sort of like you have ignored me for so long, but you like acting like this is like the Holy Grail. That's the experience, yeah. 
Over and over and again, I've seen it. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's the end of part one. Thanks for listening. Check us out on Patreon to listen to part two, where Eric picks a few favorites from his guitar collection, and he will demo them on mic for you to hear. You'll get to hear a whole bunch, including the 12-string guitar he played for an audience with the King of Sweden and B.B. King, uh, the unique instrument pictured on his album Dear America, and several others. Eric also shares what he looks and listens for when he's in a guitar shop, so you don't want to miss that either. The Acoustic Guitar Podcast is brought to you by the team at Acoustic Guitar Magazine. I'm your host, Nick Grizzle, joined for this episode by co-host Elton Bradman. Our theme song was composed by Adam Perlmutter and performed for this episode by Eric Bibb. The Acoustic Guitar Podcast is directed and edited by Joey Lusterman. Tanya Gonzalez is our producer. Executive producers for the Acoustic Guitar Podcast are Lizzie Lusterman and Stephanie Campos Dalbroy. If you enjoy this podcast and want to support us, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash acousticguitarplus or find the link in our show notes for this episode. As a supporter, you'll have access to exclusive bonus episodes along with many other special perks. And if you're already a patron, thank you so much for your support. It means a lot.